Hi, James. Hi, Michael. Hi, Ron. Welcome. Today we are discussing the immigrants of the early 1900s, uh, specifically in the Midwest, and how the ideas that they brought with them impacted the world they were living in, um, whether that's political systems or local policies or whatever. Um, I'm your host and comrade Rob, as always, I'm here to host this discussion. Uh, Trisha, are you still here? All right, I guess we'll have to introduce her in a minute. Um, Nope, my oh. bad. I had bumped my mute button. Yeah. Hi, I'm Trisha. <laughs> my participation in this event tonight has been brought to you by Marijuana, Marijuana Products, and Speedway Unicorn Cappuccino, which I've just been calling Unicorn Juice. I'm jacked up on Unicorn Juice. Hi, welcome to the show. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> so um, a lot of our discussion today is going to be focusing on Milwaukee. Um, that being said, the things that we're talking about weren't just happening in Milwaukee. They just happened to document it uh, pretty well. Um, but to start our conversation today, we're going to go to Milwaukee and it's kind of Notable that, uh, you know, the Democratic Socialists made um, such a big appearance at the 2020 Democratic Convention, uh, given that it's a city with such a long history of socialist government. Um, actually, uh, I found out in the research for this that um, Milwaukee had a socialist mayor for 38 out of the first half the first 50 years of the 1900s. And that's kind of incredible. Um, oh, yeah. Anyway, um, political radicals 
I've been living in Wisconsin since the, the state was ratified in 1940, or sorry, 1848. Um, we're going to see that year a few times. Um, we're going to, we're going to see that a few times, uh, throughout the course of discussion today. Sorry. Uh, sorry, Trisha, I'm sending that to that chat. This, <laughs> this is the one that, uh, that I'm on right now. Okay. Back to the conversation. Sorry. Um, radicalized people have been moving there since the socialist revolutions of the um, 1848, notably, but the mid 1800s, as these revolutions, you know, failed, um, and right wing governments took power, a lot of people moved here. Um, and it wasn't uncommon for employers to demand employees work 16 hours a day, six days a week. Um, so some immigrants that came in that period were familiar with the work of Karl Marx. Um, they started organizing. Um, Paul Grotkow, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that's how it looks. Uh, helped organize local laborers to walk out of their workplaces May 1st, 1886, as part of a nationwide strike for an eight-hour day. Uh, he was a, Ger a German-born newspaper editor. Um, by May 5th, at least 14,000 Milwaukeeans, about half of the city's voting population, had joined the protesters. Um, they shut down every major factory in Milwaukee, except for one. And they probably could have made that one happen if the government of Wisconsin hadn't ordered the state militia to circle it and shoot anyone who approached. The workers pressed on anyway. The soldiers fired at them, ultimately killing at least seven people, and the governor stood by the guardsmen. But this is just one story. Uh, by 1910, a plurality of voters were ready to embrace the third-party candidate. Milwaukee had a reputation as being one of the most corrupt cities in the United States. Um, both Republicans and Democrats were easy to bribe. Voters were sick of it. So when Emil Seidel, who had by then become one of the most outspoken members of the Socialist Party of America, we're going to get into the origins of the party here in a little bit. Um, but he was one of the most outspoken members of the Socialist Party of America, uh, ran for mayor on a promise that he would clean up the city's government, and he was carried into office on a wave of anti-corruption fervor. Um, Trisha, I, um, I muted you cause I was getting feedback. There you go. I was hoping that you would just notice, but I, I had not, I just started talking and then you're like, Oh, I've got to unmute you. <laughs> like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I felt like yeah. it, I felt like uh, it was a good opportunity to cut in and have something to say or something. Uh, indeed. Well, their goal there was revolution absolutely um there's a quote here from one of his compatriots in his memoirs saying they had but one aim to liberate the working class from the bondage of wage slavery that doesn't fucking say it all it's beautiful absolutely beautiful um that was the first the last and the only article of their creed and the means workers of the world unite um, he was good at tempering his idealism with some practical considerations 
and focused mainly on making tangible improvements to Milwaukee while he was mayor. Like first public works department, first fire and police commissions, creating a park system, and that stuff was popular. Um, between 1910 and 1912, uh, people were starting to see that the changes weren't just abstract. They could see their kids getting vaccinations, free textbooks, parks being built, stuff like that. So um, this is this is socialism at work. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, your tax dollars actually being used to pay for things that help society. Well, the cop part I can put as questionable on the table, but everything else, you know, that was instilled there for Milwaukee. Um, you know, that's good programs. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's cool that he inspired people like that. Uh, he also raised the minimum wage there. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. And these are very notable improvements um, compared to, to what we saw around the country. I mean, they were decades ahead. Right. Absolutely. But a lot of other places, you know, it's shame like, wait a minute, look at what they're doing over there. Sidella, I mean, now, so, now what? Now, look at how popular those things are. People, you know, absolutely demand that there be nice park systems and, you know, bike paths on their street sides and stuff like that. Here's the roots of it. Right. And he, dis, uh, Seidel, that is, disrupted politics so much that in 1912, Democrats and Republicans put aside their differences to back the same nonpartisan candidate. So they put up one guy instead of two, you know, but they, they've been nonpartisan forever. Come on, let's be real. Um, <laughs> he was voted out after just two years in, uh, as mayor but uh, he made a favorable enough impression on the electorate that they continued to vote socialists into office. Uh, when Daniel Hone, a socialist who had been serving as a city attorney, ran for mayor in 1916, he beat out both the Democratic and the Republican candidates. And then he introduced public vaccination campaigns, passed legislation uh, preventing raw sewage from entering the public's wa uh, you know, fucking water supply. And his critics called him a sewer socialist, which, I mean, <laughs> I wish he was here because he could put it in better words than I could. But Dean has uh, referred to himself as a sewer socialist a couple of times or being inspired by sewer socialists. This is literally what he's talking about. It was a moniker. Right, like, oh, my God, you fucking socialist. You want to not have shit and piss in the street? How dare you want to, right. to contribute <laughs> right. tax dollars towards the sewage system? But his but, critics started calling him a sewer socialist, <laughs> which was meant to like mock him. But then him right. and orders started taking it as a badge of honor. Like, fuck yeah, I'm a sewer socialist. I don't right. want shit in my water. Like, Are you fucking kidding me? Right, right. I would like to drink my water and not shit in the street. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Clean water, please. Clean water is a human right. If yeah, you were alive absolutely. Today, you'd be a water protector. Oh, absolutely. And I, okay, so this next line during Hone's 24 year tenure as mayor, the city won so many national sanitation awards. 
that health department officials eventually barred Milwaukee from competing and instead began printing special certificates to signify that it was in a class of its own. That's fucking nuts. That's, that's fucking nuts. Um, <laughs> and then he was on the cover of Time magazine in 1936. In 1940, they wrote that under his 24-year administration, Milwaukee became one of the best-run cities in the U.S., as opposed to one of the most corrupt um, when uh, Seidel uh, won his election in 1912. Right. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, it's almost like socialists aren't as, uh, aren't the same types of people generally as the Republicans and Democrats are. But anyway. Right. Actual leftists, not what the world sees or not what America considers, you know, leftists, because from the rest of the world's view, you know, Democrats are centrist, if not centrist to right leaning. Yeah. And I mean, if we really get down to it on a political compass, they're both authoritarian and they're both right wing parties. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, if you don't think that you live in a police state, pull up unicorn riot videos from the last four nights in Brooklyn Center and tell me we don't live in a police state. For fucking sure. Because. Dude, that proves it right there. I mean, how much evidence do we need to see how many fucking years worth of video of cops just downright fucking assaulting protesters for no fucking reason, just because they're like, we don't want you in the fucking street. Well, we don't care. We paid for these. We pay your fucking paycheck. Fuck you, man. That's our right. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, back to the, the, the topic, though. Hone lost his election in 1940, but then another socialist, Frank Zeidler, was voted into office eight years later and remained mayor until 1960. In his inaugural address, he promised vigorous leadership and action with only one purpose, the public welfare. That should be the only purpose of a government. Under exactly, his on every level, from local to federal. Ex- exactly. Even the Constitution says that that's what the government's for. I don't know why right-wingers, constitutional fetishists argue that that's not what it's for. Anyway, um, under Zeidler's watch, Milwaukee doubled in size, size sorry, and became the 12th largest city in the country. It purchased its first fire trucks, built a bunch of fire stations, expanded its infrastructure, created public housing for poor people and veterans, at a time when cities were undertaking massive urban renewal projects that often resulted in the displacement of black residents, AKA gentrification, Zeidler refused to proceed with slum clearance in Milwaukee unless integrated public housing scattered throughout the city could be provided for all displaced residents. Uh, Of course, political opponents blocked his construction plans, um, but it still happened anyway. Um, Like, uh where i don't know um well i mean his ability to main power, maintain power throughout the 1940s and 1950s is all the more surprising considering that in 1946 joseph mccarthy won one of wisconsin's senate seats in 1950 he delivered a speech that's famous now 
um, in which he, you know, claimed to have a list of 205 known communists who had infiltrated the State Department. And that's the thing, I, I would like to even point out here that like, that's, that's posed in the form of a lie, because if, if you're a citizen of the United States, how can you possibly infiltrate your own department, your own State Department by getting elected there? That's not infiltration, that's representation. But anyway, exactly, um, exactly. <laughs> you know, it sparked some red scare, of course. Um, it, and he didn't back a down. Lot of communists and socialists into hiding, but he, yeah, he refused to distance himself. Um, he wouldn't go into hiding, even as his opponents were, you know, doing the whole red scare thing, trying to undermine him. You know, they kept going. So that's what the fuck's up. And then you know, it's sad that at that point in time, you literally had to be worried for your fucking life simply for just publicly identifying as a socialist or a communist. Yeah. And his daughter said, we were all called communists, but you know, he, he still won three elections. Uh, right. He passed away in 06 at the age of 93. Some of his children still live in uh, Milwaukee. And Jean, which is the daughter that said that quote, served as mayor of Williamsburg, Virginia from 1998 to 2010. She said she always respected her father's integrity and that his political principles informed her own approach to governance. He didn't even really use the quote, he didn't even really use the word politician. He called himself a public servant. He, he understood what his role was. Uh, he was, right. um, she identifies as a democratic socialist and says stigma against her father's belief system never prevented her from succeeding. Quote, when people in Williamsburg discovered who my father was, all I would say to them was, you know, People in Williamsburg want the same things that people in Milwaukee want, and that's good schools, good public services, honest and clean governance. Jesus. It doesn't matter if we're called democratic socialists or if we're called something else. Right. Like sewer socialists. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, man. Great. But Um, I I mean, it kind of. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, no, go ahead. I I was just saying that it lives on in local legislation and public works projects. Um, It gave them lasting amenities like a stellar park system, but it also embodied a deep and timeless blend of pragmatism and idealism. That's from a Milwaukee Journal Sentinel article titled Socialism Before It Was a Four-Letter Word. Uh, Another quote from that is, although they worked for real world reforms, the socialists didn't stop there. They called their fellow citizens to a higher conception of the common good, one that placed cooperation above competition and mutualism above bare self-interest. They believed that a government based on those ideals was humanity's best hope for the future. I think it's humanity's only hope for the future. Hi, Natalie. Right. Hi, Natalie. Uh, Leanne asked if we have a schedule like posted somewhere. No, we don't have a schedule posted somewhere, but we go live um, every Monday and every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern. No, no, every Monday and every Thursday. Did I really just say Monday and Friday? I am at work at 8 o'clock on a Friday night. I am so sorry. (laughs) Monday and Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern time. (laughs) Thank you. Today is not Friday. It is not fucking Friday. 
It is uh, Thor's day. True. Uh, so sewer socialism also <laughs> lives on more explicitly in the city's local chapter of the uh, the DSA. Founded in 2016, uh, they host several meetings, workshops, and mixers each month. And its members refer to themselves as the new sewer socialists. Uh, see themselves as the, the latest links in a long chain of local le leftists the, uh, that stretch back to include Zydel, Hone, and, uh, sorry, Zeidler, Seidel, and Hone. Um, that being said, I still don't think the DSA is the end-all be-all of what I would like to see in terms of a socialist revolution, but they're definitely moving in the right direction. And as far as the DSA is an organization, they actually get out into the community and do things in most cities. Indeed. Um, one of the quotes from them is stating that, you know, today they're committed to politics that will radically transform Milwaukee, shifting power in the city from capital to the people. And that's what the fuck that we need to see across this entire country. Amen to that. <laughs> James is giving me shit. He said off by a day, but I'll watch you again tomorrow if you're on. <laughs> <laughs> we thought about doing extra streams this week, actually, um, pertaining to the Dante Wright thing, um, particularly trying to go through the unicorn riot footage and amplifying the voices of um, you know, black activists that are actually living in this situation rather than um, put our spin on it. But of course, like we, we do want to talk about it from our point because man, if that ain't a police state, I don't know what you think is. Right. It's fucking sad, dude. That this is actually happening in this fucking country. You know, like how much more militarized if they're trying to, you know, put a city of about a million people on a fucking curfew and shit. Like, get the fuck out of here, big brother. Amen to that. Ain't helping. Y'all motherfuckers are the problem. You ever <laughs> notice that, like, the right and left seem to have completely different, like, uh, takeaways from books like 1984 and Animal Farm because like right. some get fucking inspired and others are like uh-uh uh-uh no well I mean no. not even that like according to the capitalists 1984 was about living in a socialist world and according to the socialists 1984 was ab about living in a capitalist world and the same th the same thing goes for fucking Animal Farm I mean it's well, according to this realist, it's about living in a fucking authoritarian world, and that's some shit you can get regardless yeah. of what fucking um, financial system you are under. Right now, we've got capitalism with authoritarianism, and it's a fucking problem. Exactly. And, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I was getting at there, is, like, man, you, you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find events like that happening in Cuba. I'm just fucking saying. Right. Right. And they wouldn't fly. And they would not fly. They would be like, wait a fucking minute. No, we we pay your paycheck and, and they would understand what that means. Here they're like, fuck you, I'm the authority. 
<laughs> Ron said, hey, it's already Friday in China to Europe, so you aren't completely out. Okay. Right on. Thank you for the info. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to move on to the next uh, source for info, but um, there's a famous quote from Emile Seidel. Um, apparently, he wrote this in his memoirs. Quote, we wanted a chance for every human being to be strong and live a life of happiness. That's okay. what we all want. Right. Um, I'm going to take a minute here to plug our Patreon because I did not do that at the beginning of the episode like I usually do. But we can just save it for the end, but okay. <laughs> oh, we can we can just throw, we can just throw it right in the middle. Um, if you like what we do and you want to see us do more of what we do, head over to patreon.com slash for we are many. And um, we are currently working on um, bonus content for Patreon subscribers. All right, that's that's my Patreon plug. We don't have Don and Dean, so you know, I can't, I can't, I can't be like Don with his yo Elon. Oh, actually, he's been sending videos and pictures to Jeff Bezos, and they will stop when he contributes. Elon, well. We're not going to quit busting your balls, but. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so there is a page here from Indiana Magazine of History from December 1989. And uh, it actually gives a review of a book. So I'm going to plug the book. And I'm going to read that. Well, it's not really a review, I guess, but like a summary. That's a better word for it. But the book is titled Socialism in the Heartland, The Midwestern Experience, 1900 to 1925, uh, by Donald T. Critchlow. Um, this fine collection of essays analyzes the growth and ultimate failure of the socialist movement in one state, Indiana, and five cities, Milwaukee, Marion, Indiana, Flint, Michigan, Dayton, Ohio, and Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, one union, which was District 12 of the Illinois United Mine Workers of America. The editor's introduction is a valuable summary of the histiography. I was trying to add a, another R in there. Um, of the subject and guide to the significance of each of the essays. In the Soci Socialist Party in Indiana, 1900 to 1925. Um, James R. Simmons notes, that's another book, huh? Notes the Socialist Party's electoral successes in a score of Hoosier small and mid-sized town and cities, and its critical failure to attract support in the rural areas and larger cities of the state. In those cities where the party had a brief tenure of power, the limitations on home rule noted in several of the essays, narrowly defined the areas in which socialist reforms might be carried out. Simmons recounts the impact of World War I's loyalty frenzy and the post-war reactionary cycle on the Indiana Socialist Party and raises the provocative possibility, also raised in other essays, that during the 20s, the enfeebled party lost members to the rising KKK, which was uh, nowhere stronger than in Indiana with its own agenda of quote-unquote reform. 
Um, so before I get too much further, I want to say that we're also going to be talking about the loyalty frenzy in World War One, uh, widely known as uh, the first Red Scare. Um, are you saying it's another parking lot issue or you want to throw that in? On oh, the no, no, it's part of this. Okay. Um, all right. So I just realized that I didn't send you that last link. Um, there we go. Thank you, Sue. That's the uh, one that I'm going into now. We talked a little bit about Daniel Hone. Um, he was the second. He's the guy that was mayor of Milwaukee for 24 years. Uh, he was born in Waukesha, Wisconsin, Wisconsin and in, in 1881. He left school early, but he studied at evening classes and in 1908 qualified as a lawyer. A member of the Socialist Party, Hone moved to Milwaukee, where he worked closely with Victor Berger, the editor of the radical newspaper Milwaukee Leader, in trying to persuade the city to adopt radical reforms. This included municipal ownership of utilities, urban renewal programs, and free legal, medical, and educational services. That's what's up. Yeah, that sounds still a lot like what we're trying to get accomplished today. Right. Sadly, here it is over 100 years later, and we're still fighting for the same thing. Yeah. like they thought throwing a band-aid on a bleeding artery would do it you know of there being projects for the urban renewal programs that ended up you know creating worse issues for people to have to deal with when living in there um as far as the free legal good luck <laughs> and we're still very limited when it comes to medical and educational things yeah you know, Seldom few people re even like um, qualify for the state covered insurance for medical. And as far as education, yes, we have K through 12 socialized, but it needs such drastic improvements in the way everything is taught that every aspect of this is a shortfall to what people were calling for over 100 fucking years ago. True that. True that. Uh, so we already talked about, um, Emil Seidel, uh, he was elected mayor of Milwaukee and became the first socialist leader of a major city in the United States. Um, that little fact, I guess I didn't put out there, but the following year, Hong became Milwaukee's city attorney in the next years, the next six years, he clamped down on corruption of public officials. Uh, 1917, he was elected as mayor. Well, Technically, 1916, he was elected. 1917, he took power as mayor of Milwaukee. Unlike many members of the Socialist Party, uh, he supported U.S. entry into World War I. That's interesting. Um, so... A lot of socialists in World War One did not support the war, and that's where the first Red Scare came from. They tried to 
intimidate everybody into being loyal to their country, basically, just like they did to you and I after 9-11. Yeah, he remained mayor for 24 years, which is the longest continuous socialist administration. And uh, I'm sorry, Trisha, I muted you because it was echoing. That's all. You can unmute and talk. I know. I just wasn't trying to interrupt you. <laughs> I, I know. I know. With that note, that's why I just texted that to you. So yeah, it's that's, all good. that's why I just Continue. stopped. Like, hey, say, okay. If it, if it's echoing, it's echoing. Here, I'll mute. Indeed. Uh, okay, so um, that's the longest continuous socialist administration in U.S. history. He brought a large number of progressive reforms, including the country's first public housing project, Garden Homes, started in 1923. Pone also led the successful drive towards municipal ownership of the stone quarry, street lighting, sewage disposal, and water purification. Uh, he developed a reputation for honest and efficient government. Um, and in 1999, Melvin Holy or Holly, the author of The American Maker, Mayor, and a group of experts on local government voted him as the eighth best mayor in U.S. history. I probably vote him number one, but I don't know who the other seven are, so I, I can't say that. He wrote, quote, although the self-identified socialists had difficulty pushing progressive legislation through a nonpartisan city council, he experimented with the municipal marketing of food back city built housing uh, and in providing public market city harbor improvements and purging graft from Milwaukee politics. Uh, his most important leg legacy was cleaning up the free and easy corruption that prevailed before he took office. Um, that being said, he was defeated in 1941 and three years later left the Socialist Party and joined the fucking Democrats. He ran un unsuccessfully in every election that he ran in after that, uh, two, gover uh, two governor bids and a mayoral bill bid, sorry. Um, and in 1948, he was defeated by the socialist candidate who we already talked about, Frank Zeidler. So I think that like, I think that his heart was in the right place. You know, I, I don't think that his follow through was great. And I don't know why he ever would have left for the Democratic Party. Um, infuriating. Yeah, he went in the wrong direction there. But, uh, you know, I, I can see where what he was doing, what they were trying to envision and trying to create and you know, we're actually on some good paths there. But like you said, follow through, not just with the rest of the people at that point in time, but since. Indeed. I mean, as a country, it's a country we've failed with that follow through. You know, mm -hmm. these guys can't be the only ones, you know, who were envisioning building those things at that point in time. You know, they just happen to be the ones right there in Milwaukee. Um, you know, and as a country, we fucking failed. Yeah. Meet those standards of fucking living that people were already calling for at that point in time. For fuck's sake, some parts of Flint still don't have clean water. Just fucking remind people of that one. Yeah. And that's, 
awful. Needless to say, that's awful. Um, so we're going to be backtracking a little bit. Wow. I just heard myself so loud. Um, I'm going to, we're going to be backtracking a little bit to about the 1820s. Um, a wealthy Welsh, Welsh industrialist named Robert Owen uh, tried to, well, not tried to, founded a communitarian colony called New Harmony in Southwest Indiana. Uh, the group fell apart in 1829, mostly due to conflict between utopian ideologies and non-ideological pioneers. Um, but in 1841, uh, transcendentalist utopians founded Brook Farm, a community based on Frenchman Charles Fourier's brand of socialism. And that's an important thing to note, too, is that there is uh, a million fucking different types of socialists and uh i think a lot of people forget that anyway nathaniel hawthorne was a member of the short-lived community and ralph waldo emerson had declined invitations to join uh they had trouble reaching financial stability um all hope for its survival was lost when the expensive Fourier or Fourier inspired main building burnt down while still under construction. The community dissolved in 1847. So I think that the issue with utopian socialism is that there, because there was no state, there was no funding. Um, you know, like you can't just have one wealthy guy. Well, I mean, in today's society, you literally could have just one wealthy guy fund it, but that was, that was a little different back then. Um, Anyway, but that was also in the same neck of the woods. So I, I guess now we're going to move on to early Marxism. Uh, there was a lot of German uh, immigrants who arrived in the U.S. after the 1848 revolutions and Europe brought socialized uh, after the 1848 revolutions and brought socialist ideas with them. So, excuse me. Um, the revolutions of 1848, known in some countries as the springtime of the peoples, uh, were a series of political upheavals throughout Europe in 1848. Um, so there was uprisings in Italy, France, Germany, Denmark, Hungary, Sweden, Switzerland, Poland, uh, Romania, Belgium, Ireland, Spain, and in parts of Latin America. Um, I didn't realize that that was, I, I know that a lot of the immigrants that we're going to be talking about specifically came from uh, Germany, Denmark, and Sweden. Um, that being said, I didn't realize that all of Europe was in a state of unrest in 1848. Spring of the peoples, as it's known in some countries. Anyway, so a lot of people that left these countries after these revolutions failed came to America trying to find a new life or whatever, and they brought knowledge of Karl Marx with them. Um, Joseph Weidemeyer, a German colleague of Karl Marx who sought refuge in New York in 1851 following the revolutions, established the first Marxist journal in the United States, Die Revolution, but it folded after two issues. Um, so a larger wave of German immigrants followed in the 1870s and 80s, 
including social democratic followers of uh, Ferdinand, Ferdinand LaSalle. He regarded state aid through political action as the road to revolution and opposed trade unionism, which he saw as futile. Uh, wow, that could probably be a fucking parking lot episode. Um, believing that according to the iron law of wages, employers would only pay uh, subsistence wages. They formed the Social Democratic Party of North America in 1874, and both Marxists and Lasallians formed the Working Men's Party of the U.S. in 1876. When the Lasallians gained control in 1877, they changed the name to Socialist Labor Party of America. However, many socialists abandoned political action altogether and moved to trade unionism. Two socialists, uh, Adolf Strasser and Samuel Gompers, formed the AFL in 1886. So, like I said, we backtracked a little bit, but all of this is relevant because the same wave of predominantly German and Swedish immigrants already had a collective mindset. They already had uh, Marxist ideals. Um, and as soon as they got off the boat, they started organizing. And that's what we all need to do today. That's what we have lost as a society. We don't want to talk to our neighbors anymore because we don't like them. But these people moved to a country where they literally knew nobody and organized their communities. I think that that's inspiring in and of itself. Um, anyway, so uh, bringing the light are bringing to light the resemblance of America of American parties politics to those of the Saul. Daniel De Leon emerged as an early leader of the Socialist Labor Party. He also adamantly supported unions, but criticized the collective bargaining movement within the U.S. at a time, favoring a slightly different approach. Weird, there was leftist infighting in the fucking 1800s. Who would have thought? That's a that's an old tradition, ladies and gentlemen. The resulting disagreement between De Leon's supporters and detractors within the party led to an early schism. De Leon's opponents, led by, the, by Morris Hillquit, left the Socialist Labor Party in 1901 as they fused with Eugene V. Debs' Social Democratic Party and formed the Socialist Party of America. Um, that being said, I'm going to take this moment to let everybody know what we're doing for next Thursday's stream. Again, that is Thursday, not Friday. That is at 8 p.m. Eastern time. It'll be on podcast platforms the next day. The next Thursday's episode is going to be about Eugene V. Debs, the IWW, and the, uh, the origins of the IWW and the origins of the Socialist Party of America. Um, the reason those things are combined into one is because Eugene V. Debs is a key figure in all of them. Anyway... Um, so the first socialist to hold public office in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. was Fred C. Hack, a owner of a shoe store in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. He was elected to the city council in 1897 as a member of the Populist Party, but soon became a socialist following the organization of Social Democrats in Sheboygan. He was re-elected alderman in nine, or 1898 on the socialist ticket. Um, along with a local baseball manager, and he served on the city council for 16 years, advocating for the building of schools and public ownership of utilities. Um, 
He was recognized as the first socialist office holder in the U.S. at the 1932 Socialist Party Convention held in, you guessed it, Milwaukee. And then there is there is one of uh, the first general strikes in the U.S. 1877, St. Louis general strike uh, was largely organized by the, the Knights of Labor and the Marxist-leaning Workingmen's Party, the main radical political party of the era. When the railroad strike reached East Street Louis or East St. Louis, sorry, Illinois, in July 1877, the Workingmen's Party led a group of approximately 500 people across the river in an act of solidarity with the nearly 1,000 workers on strike. Man, I didn't I didn't know about almost any of this until putting, you know, starting this. Um, you have you have anything you want to say, Trisha? All right. Oh, hey, hey there you I, are. <laughs> my, my mic was muted still. <laughs> um, well, uh. Honestly, I, I love the solidarity that they were showing there, um, you know, marching across the river to stand with the workers, because that's the kind of solidarity that we need to see across the board. When it's yeah. workers' rights, human rights, regardless of the case, you know, we need to see solidarity with people in the streets going, wait a minute, no. We're going to stand together, because seriously, uh the shit that we are dealing with right now when it comes to workers' rights specifically, it's absolutely fucking abhorrent that so many companies can get away with the shit that they're doing. And if we had that kind of solidarity right now, you know how many fucking things we would be changing within um, the labor force, within even the unions themselves. But I digress. Yeah. Um, Back then, the Socialist Party had formed, you know, some strong alliances with a number of labor organizations because they had those similar goals. In an attempt to rebel against the abuses of corporations, workers had found a solution, they thought, with collective bargaining of, you know, banding together and even forming these unions and striking, um, halting the production and forcing management to meet their demands. You know, but uh, from uh, Daniel, De, Daniel De Leon's, excuse me, early proposal to organize unions with a socialist purpose, the two movements became closely tied. So they shared as one major ideal, the spirit of collectivism, both in the socialist platform and in the idea of collective bargaining. So, um, I mean, they were laying the groundwork there, things that we, we absolutely can actually used to you know improve things but honestly you know me i'm a fucking marxist i say seize the shit because amen to that this the collective bargaining even as far as you can get with that look at um our parents generation had gotten you know 50 leaps forward with that shit and actually had amazing wages and benefits and the whole fucking nine yards. And they punched the shit right the fuck back down about a decade ago and started, you know, letting go of everybody a little at a time. The ones who were high paid and had seniority and hiring people in of our ages 
that, you know, we're willing to work for 15 to $17 an hour instead, you know, like, that's how far collective bargaining got you. A couple of generations of people doing good and then bam, they fucking knock the wages back down. So my, my advice is just seize the damn companies, make them worker owned where you're actually getting your fair share of those profits as an equal share owner. The only way that you're actually properly getting paid for your labor, for your time, for your skills, is if you're getting an equal cut of the profits produced by your labor. Because right now, if you have a job working in a shop and there's a bunch of other motherfuckers above you in upper management sitting in a suit, fucking drinking the cognac in their fucking office, they want you to think that they are paying you to do a job. But the fact of the matter is, you're the one coming in there, doing all the work, producing all of the things that they need you to produce in order to sell to make any fucking money. And what are they producing? Not much, maybe a little bit of a paper trail, probably a cocaine trail too. And you're the ones producing all the goods. If you want to get down to the nitty fucking gritty of it, you're the one paying them. You are paying them to sit on their asses in an office and tell you what to do. <laughs> the wealth in like $50 trillion in the working class, like... <sighs> I mean, I agree. I don't think collective bargaining is enough. That being said, if you ever have the opportunity as your workplace, I do say do it because it will improve your life. But it's not enough on yes. its own. Yes, absolutely unionized. Because coming together is something that we are absolutely, you know, in need of. But you need to take it further than what unions have limited themselves to doing so far because of problems with them being run in the same manners as our fucking government, which is obviously faulty. Um, you know, there's so much further that you can take that when it comes to demanding actual workers' rights. I don't know, me personally, I would never even fuck around with a company that is not a fucking owner-operated co-op. Won't do it. I refuse. I have had so many fucking jobs in my life where I was busting my ass so that somebody else could get rich while trying to tell me I should be thankful for the pittance that I get that is a fraction of the wealth produced by my time and my labor and my skills. So I don't even fuck around with anything that isn't. But I encourage those who are already working in those vicinities, in those shops, in those stores, etc., seize the motherfucking means by any means possible because fuck being exploited. Amen to that. Anyway, I mean, 
back to the things that brought us to this point and, and built it where there's even a fucking voice for American workers. <laughs> Let's rewind again. 1869. Um, Uriah Stevens founded the Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor. <laughs> and uh, uh, just uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to plug that we did a piece on the Knights of Labor. It's available on podcast platforms. It's on YouTube. It's on Facebook. Yes, it is. And they'll go into much more depth than I'm going to right now. Just, you know, to give them a shout too, as far as those roots being planted there that actually led to this because um, they were, they were creating a sense of solidarity of, you know, one enormous union of workers. Um, it, it really laid the groundwork for it. You know, in 1886, a convention of delegates from 20 different unions formed the American Federation of Labor, um, you know, that too brought together four million people. Think about that at that point in time, you know, as far as back when the <laughs> you know, right, right. Uh, at that, that point in time for population numbers, that was pretty hot. <laughs> I, I just got I just got one more thing about another thing that we have on the the to-do list, so to speak, is the piece just like this on the AFL and its evolution into what is now a liberal union, a, a palatable by the ruling class union known as the AFL. <laughs> right. Uh, but we do want to talk about the radical so I just wanted to say that <laughs> yes absolutely but yeah the socialist movement it, it gained strength from its ties to labor plain and simple um, you know that, that's at the very foundation of Marxist ideals in the first place is workers rights you know, and being socialist, meaning, you know, not only those aspects applying to your work, but to your community of fucking take care of each other. <laughs> Damn it. Amen to that. <laughs> that is where we gain our strength. That is where we gain is in our fucking solidarity because we outnumber them. And I love to remind people of that. We fucking outnumber them. I reminded Sean of that earlier too. You know where she works, and I was like, "You outnumber them greatly." Keep it in mind. <laughs> right, absolutely. Yeah. They they've got their own network of you know discussing issues within that corporation, and I'm like, man. I mean, you could go either way with it of a class action lawsuit or just seize the motherfucking names. Anywho, I digress. Anyway, not all of the uh, uh, immigrants were, were also, also um, early anarchists that came. You were breaking up really bad there, but I heard immigrants and anarchists, and I know you can't see it, but I'll put a fist in the air. Yeah. Um, actually, if you want to scroll down to early anarchists, too. Kind of what I was getting at, <laughs> but oh, okay. 
the point is, is that a lot of these anarchist organizers that came over came over at the same period of time um, as leftist revolution in Europe. They came here to try to start to build something new. Um, in which point, I'll, I'll take a moment to also plug our Haymarket Square piece um, on what happened in Chicago there, because that was seven anarchists, six of whom were German, that uh, got sentenced to death with no evidence. None. And if I remember correct, weren't the others um, sentences overturned? Yeah, some of them were overturned before they were carried out, but some of them were not. Right. Seven of them were put to death. Simply for demanding a fucking eight-hour day in all trades. Yep. Which, I mean, that was, that was huge at the time. Right. I mean, at that point in time, they they were being stressed to the max with the number of fucking hours everybody was being forced to work. It was horrendous. You didn't have enough time to fucking live. Right. Who the fuck wants to live to work? No, work to live. Damn it. Yeah, I mean, they were working 16-hour days, fucking six days a week. Right, like, how the fuck do you even survive that? I mean, <laughs> that's just, it's insane. It's insane the shit that people used to deal with. So, but I don't know. When I look at people today, too, it's also one of those things of like, man, if nobody ever told you that it was fucking normal, if nobody like indoctrinated you into thinking that this was fucking normal by raising you in this shit, if you were just existing happily doing your own fucking thing and somebody told you that you needed to work 40 hours a week to justify your existence and so that somebody else could make the majority of that money and keep it for themselves you'd be pissed like who the fuck are you what are you talking about no I don't you know we are the only species that pays to exist point that out so frustrating like if, if it wasn't for you know the exploitation of work happening in so many different facets we wouldn't have to have conversations like this we wouldn't have to have unions we wouldn't have to worry about seizing the means but I'm stoned and I digress right the means would be ours Right, right. Fuck. I also encourage entrepreneurship on that note. All right, so um, let's see. Oh, my dogs are barking. That's great. <laughs> um, so American anarchist Ben Tucker focused on economics, advocating what he called anarchistic socialism um, or 
as it's known today, anarcho-socialism. Um, adhering to the mutualist economics of Pierre Joseph Proudhon and Josiah Warren while publishing his eclectic influential publication, Liberty. Um, two individualist anarchists who wrote in uh, Benjamin Tucker's Liberty were also important labor organizers of the time. And uh, sorry, those dogs are really distracting. Uh, Joseph Labadee was an American labor organizer, individualist anarchist, social activist, printer, publisher, essayist, and poet. Without the oppression of the state, Labadee believed humans would choose to harmonize with the great natural laws without robbing their fellows through interest, profit, rent, and taxes. However, he supported community cooperation as he supported community control of water utilities, streets, and railroads. Uh, although he did not support the militant anarchism of the Haymarket anarchists, he fought for clemency for the accused because he did not believe that they were the perpetrators. In 1888, Labadee organized the Michigan Federation of Labor, became its first president, and forged an alliance with Samuel Gompers. Uh, Dyer Loom. Okay, so like essentially, the it's going through a bunch of names. We don't need to know all of the names. Um, the 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 point though is that early anarchists there had already been anarchist and anarcho-communist roots. Um, <clears throat> built through the country um, by <laughs> do you hear Mario howling with the fire truck? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. <laughs> isn't he adorable? <laughs> Man, he's the cutest. Anyway, um, by the 1880s, anarcho-communism had reached the U.S. and can be seen, as can be seen in the publication of the journal Freedom, a revolutionary anarchist communist monthly by Lucy, Par Lucy Parsons and Lizzie Holmes. Um, Parsons debated in her time in the United States uh, with fellow anarcho-communist Emma Goldman over the issues of free love and feminism. Uh, but most anarchist publications in the US were in Yiddish, German, or Russian. So, I mean, if that doesn't prove the point that we're trying to make here. But Free Society was published in English, permitting the dissemination of anarchist communist thought to English-speaking populations. Um, so Bertman and Goldman soon came under the influence of Johann Most uh, the best known anarchist in the United States and an advocate of propaganda of the deed um, or violence carried out to encourage the masses to revolt. Actually, I'd like to have a discussion about propaganda of the deed at a later date, but not right now. Um, that being said, now we're getting into the... the oh, okay, so actually, I'm going to rewind a little bit. The reason I wanted to do anarchism first is because the, the last part... Uh, about the ties to labor, we're talking about anarchists primarily because anarchists were the ones that at the time that were willing to uh, break the law or risk punishment to see their goals met. Not to say the socialists didn't too, they did, but not as early as the anarchists. Um, but due to military strikes, uh, National Guard arrests, 
um, you know, these types of things happening. Union members were afraid to strike. The military saw strikers as dangerous insurgents, intimidated and threatened them. These attitudes were compounded with a public backlash against anarchists. As public opinion of strikes and unions soured, the socialists often appeared guilty by association. They were lumped together with strikers and anarchists under a blanket of public distrust. And that takes us into uh, the first Red Scare, in my opinion, better than the original um, liner. But uh, Victor L. Berger ran for Congress and lost in 1904 before winning Wisconsin's 5th Congressional District seat in 1910 as the first socialist to serve in the Congress. So Congress has had socialist representation before, even if it was only a small percentage. Um, and that seems to be the hurdle that we can't, well, I can't say that we still have Bernie, but I don't know. I guess, I guess I've, I've grown away from Bernie since the end of his 2020 campaign, but he's still fighting the good fight. So I don't have anything bad to say. I've just gone further left. Um, so he focused on issues relating to the district of Columbia and also more radical proposals, including eliminating the presidential veto, abolishing the Senate, and the socialization of major industry. Berger gained national publicity for his old age pension bill, the first of its kind introduced, uh, introduced into Congress. Less than two weeks after the Titanic disaster in 1912, Berger introduced a bill in Congress providing for the nationalization of radio wireless system, systems. A practical socialist, Berger argued that the wireless chaos, which occurred during the Titanic disaster, had demonstrated the need for a government-owned wireless system. Outside of Congress, socialists were able to influence a number of progressive reforms, both directly and indirectly on a local level. Um, and again, Berger is uh, an Austrian-American. He is an immigrant from the same regions of, the, of Europe that we were talking about that came here during this time and founded the Social Democratic Party of America and its successor, the Socialist Party of America. Um, anyway, socialists met harsh opposition when they opposed American entry into World War I. Um, in retrospect, I do tend to think that World War I was a war of imperialism. Um, it was a war of colonialism, seeing the end of its reign, and imperialism, or, I mean, I guess it's still colonialism in a sense, but I don't know. The point is, is that it was a, it was a war of money, and the socialists all around the world opposed it. Um, and that sparked the first red, uh, the first red scare. Um, on April 17th, 1917, the day after Congress declared war on Germany, an emergency convention of the Socialist Party took place in St. Louis. It declared the, declared the war a crime against the people of the United States and began holding anti-war rallies. Socialist anti-draft demonstrations drew as many as 20,000 people. In June 1917, President Woodrow Wilson signed into law the Espionage Act, 
which included a clause providing prison sentences of up to 20 years for whoever, when the United States is at war, shall willfully cause or attempt to cause insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, or refusal of duty, or willfully obstruct the recruiting or enlistment of service of the United States. If that wasn't put in there to keep the, uh, the military machine fed. <clears throat> anyway. Um, Archibald E. Stevenson, a New York attorney with ties to the Justice Department, probably as a volunteer spy, testified on January 22nd, 1919, during the German phase of the subcommittee's work. He established that anti-war and anti-draft activism during World War I, which he described as pro-German activity, had now transformed itself into propaganda, uh, developing sympathy for the Bolshevik movement. Uh, well, well, yeah, they were implementing socialism. Duh. Sorry. Anyway, the United States wartime enemy, though defeated, had exported an ideology that now ruled Russia and threatened the United States anew. Quote, the Bolshevik movement is a branch of the revolutionary socialism of Germany. It had its origin in the philosophy of Marx and its leaders were Germans. After visiting three socialists in prison in Canton, Ohio, Eugene V. Debs crossed the street and made a two-hour speech to a crowd in which he condemned the war. He sat a 10-year prison sentence for that speech, actually. Um, I believe that we will have video of reenactment of a portion of that speech during the Debs episode. Um, but yeah, anyway... He was immediately arrested and soon convicted under the Espionage Act. During his trial, he did not take the stand nor call a witness in his defense. However, before the trial began and after his sentencing, he made speeches to the jury. Uh, and a quote that they threw in here is, I have been accused of obstructing the war. I admit it. Uh, gentlemen, I abhor a war. I have sympathy with the suffering, struggling people everywhere. He also uttered what would become his most famous world's uh, wor <laughs> worlds, wow, words, quote, while there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. While there is a soul in prison, I am not free. He was sentenced to 10 years and served 32 months until President uh, Warren G. Harden, Harding pardoned him. I didn't realize that he was pardoned. I thought he sat the whole ten, uh, 10 years, but either way, he ran a presidential campaign from prison. During the war, about half the socialists supported the war, most famously Walter Lippmann. Um, he was a, an American writer and political commentator. So, of course, you know, he supported the war. <clears throat> but anyway, the other half were under attack for obstructing the draft, and the courts held that they went beyond the bounds of free speech when they encouraged young men to break the law and not register for the draft. Howard Zinn, historian on the left, uh, I would assume that everybody that's hearing my voice is familiar with Howard Zinn. Um, if not, become familiar with Howard Zinn. The patriotic fervor of war was invoked. The courts and jails were used to reinforce the idea that certain ideas, certain kinds of resistance could not be tolerated. That's, I think, what we saw after... Um, 
belief day. Yeah. The government crackdown on dissenting radicalism paralleled public outrage towards opponents of the, of the war. Several groups were formed on the local and national levels to stop the socialists from undermining the draft laws. Check out these names. The American Vigilante Patrol, a subdivision of the American Defense Society, was formed with the purpose to put an end to seditious street oratory. The American Protective League was a new private group that kept track of cases of disloyalty. <coughs> uh, it eventually claimed it had found 3 million such um, cases. Even if the figures are, are exaggerated, the very size and scope of the league gives a clue to the amount of disloyalty. Um, the press was also instrumental. I'm not going to go through any of these quotes. You all know what the fucking New York Times said about it. Um, internal strife. Oh, actually, hold on. I missed a spot. 1919, uh, through 35,000 shipyard workers in Seattle went on strike seeing wage increases. They appealed to the Seattle Central Labor Council for support from other unions and found widespread enthusiasm. Within two weeks, more than 100 local unions joined a call on February 3rd for a general strike to begin on the morning of February 6th. The 60,000 total strikers paralyzed the city's normal activities like streetcar service, schools, and ordinary commerce, while their general strike committee maintained order and provided essential services like trash collection and milk deliveries. So they didn't just strike. They, they showed that the system was not necessary. Um, the national press called the general strike, quote, Marxian and a revolutionary movement aimed at existing government. Duh. <clears throat> anyway, through the leadership of the AFL, though the leadership of the AFL opposed the strike in the steel industry, 98% of their union members voted to strike beginning September 22nd, 1919. Uh, it shut down half the steel industry. After strike breakers and police clashed with unionists in Gary, Indiana, the U.S. Army took over the city on October 6th and martial law was declared. Over a strike, martial law was declared. We've been a police state. National Guardsmen leaving Gary after federal groups, uh, troops, sorry, had taken over, turned their anger on strikers in nearby Indiana Harbor, Indiana. Um, internal strife caused a schism in the American left after Vladimir Lenin's successful revolution in Russia. Uh, Lenin invited the Socialist Party to join the Third International. The debate over whether to align with Lenin caused a major rift in the party, a referendum to join Lenin's uh, the Third International passed with 90% uh, approval, but the moderates who were in charge of the party expelled the extreme leftists before this could take place. It passed with 90% approval. That means it fucking passed. Anyway, um, they expelled members. The expelled members formed the Communist Party of America and the Communist Labor Party. The Socialist Party ended up with only moderates left at one-third its original size. Um, 
the communists organized the Trade Union Unity League to compete with the AFL. By August 1919, only months after its founding, the Communist Party of America had, or Communist Party USA, claimed 50 to 60,000 members. Members also included anarchists and other radical leftists. In contrast, the more moderate Socialist Party of America had 40,000 members. Um, so that's where a lot of the infighting on the left started. That is, um, I think in American politics, the, the, the branch between the Marxist-Leninists and the Marxists is a key moment. That's where the left fractured. That's where we stopped winning elections. That's where we stopped accomplishing anything. Um, and frankly, I mean, it sounds like the leadership, the moderate leadership should have never been the leadership of the Socialist Party. Uh, they, they, they destroyed the left. Um, the referendum to, to join the Third International passed with 90% approval. There should have been no opposition to that at all. Anyway, um, that's, that's about it out of this piece because now we're getting past the 20s. Um, so I'm going to send, I'm, I'm going to put this in the comments as well, actually. There's the link for the next one. And there we go. All right, so um, this piece is is really good, and frankly, uh, I'm not reading an 18-page pamphlet on the air. We are going to be covering key points. Um, I put the link in the comments, so if anybody wants to follow along, they can. Um, or not necessarily follow along, but read it on their own, I guess is what I'm getting at. Um the earliest period of socialism in America was between 1776 and 1824 when co the communistic ventures of the Shakers, Rapites, and Zorites had the entire field to themselves. Obviously, that's not um, too relevant, but it's one of seven periods. So, I mean, I'm just going to read the seven periods. Uh, from 1825 to 1828, when Robert Owen made America the theater of his attempts to put his utopian socialist dreams into practice by communistic experiments. We talked about that a little bit as a lead in. Um, 1841 to 1847, the period when uh, Fourierism, there we go, swept, swept over the country as a craze, leading to the establishment of a great number of communities, all of them doomed to fail within a brief time. And then 1847 to 1856, when Wilhelm Whiteling was the moving spirit in trying to organize systematic socialistic agitation. Uh, 1857 to 1888, um, this period of time seems to have been to, devoted to the effort of the immigrant socialists, particularly from Germany, 
to spread the tenets of socialism, more particularly of social democracy, but unfortunately without getting the Yankee ear. It was during uh, this period that the Socialist Turner Societies flourished. Then 88 to 97, the period uh, is designated as the gestation of socialism as native to American soil. Um, it mentions a couple of books. From 1897 down uh, is the period which American socialism having chipped the shell first asserts itself as a force in American politics through the formation of the Social Democracy of America, uh, the Socialist Labor Party, and uh, by its transplanted methods having failed to reach the American ear. Two factors which helped prepare the field for the new party were the agitation work of Eugene V. Debs um, and the Press proselyting. I don't, I probably butchered that. Whatever powers of editor J.A. Wayland, successfully of the coming nation, successively, sorry, of the coming nation and the appeal to reason. Um, so, chapter five of this, of this book, which is pretty much what this excerpt is, is um, the pioneers of scientific socialism. Uh, their influence on the succeeding growth of the socialist movement in America is hard to estimate as that growth is very slow. Uh, for years, it seemed as if nothing would take root among Americans. Uh, but I mean, that led to fear because they didn't understand it. Um, so Uh, in the spring of 1852, Joseph Weidemeyer, a friend of Karl Marx, began to disseminate the teachings of Mar Marx and Engels as set forth in the Communist Manifesto. In order to do this better, he began a publication of a monthly magazine in the German language, which he called The Revolution. The first number was especially notable through uh, containing a specially contributed article by Marx. The magazine could not have been uh, sh more short-lived as the second number never made its appearance. Wow. Um, Weidemeyer had the financial assistance of a German merchant, but the magazine was found too expensive to continue. Uh, he moved to St. Louis, though. Uh, that's why that was relevant. He is a name that we heard earlier on. Um... So, so this is kind of like branching out from the Midwest at this point. Um, a club of communists was founded in 1857 in New York by German revolutionists of 1848. It did considerable propaganda work and on the following year arranged a memorial meeting in honor of the Paris-June Revolution of 1848 with an attendance of 1,000 men of various nationalities. Um, and then uh, in 1865, fo followers of LaSalle were attempting to organize, and they succeeded three years later. In 1866, a Congress of National Labor Organizers was held in Baltimore, and a socialist delegate named Schlegel uh, made an unsuccessful effort to create a political labor party. So it started off as clubs. Um, it, it was these, these immigrants in the Midwest that actually started you know, <clears throat> successfully organizing entire industries, 
and winning offices. Um, so the year 1871 was notable for the arrival of a number of French refugees. The Paris, the Paris Commune having just been suppressed, we'll eventually do a piece on that too. We started putting the piece together, but man, there is a lot uh, that happened during the, the days of the Paris Commune. Um, but Karl Marx and Frederick Engels called it a real example of the dictatorship of the proletariat. And um, I actually have a book about it that maybe, maybe one of these days we'll do it for our book club. But anyway, um, I'm still back in the 1870s. We already talked about this. Actually, I don't think there's a whole lot that we have to read out of this. It just goes into a lot more detail than we already did. Um, but as I said, I'm not going to read an 18-page excerpt from a book. Um on the air. So I guess we can just go into the discussion segment now. Does anybody in the comments have any questions or comments or? You're still muted, Trisha. <laughs> Don't mind me. I'm over here hitting my dad's back. Uh, oh man <coughs> I also don't think I think I need to refresh my stream on the phone because I oh hey that's exactly what happened what's up <laughs> my, my stream on my phone um, hadn't updated in a long time and then I refreshed it now I see a bunch of comments that I was missing Sorry about that, guys. There's the link. Emily apologized for a loud mouth dog, but we uh, already established that he's adorable. James said they, they sick the army on them. And yes, James, they literally sick the army on Union strikers. Um, but the point of the episode was to talk about the influence that these German and then later Swedish and French immigrants had on America. They brought these ideas, socialism and anarchism and communism. They brought these ideas from Germany and Sweden and France and wherever else. Uh, Jewish people were mentioned in there too, of, you know, a lot of those pamphlets being published in Yiddish. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, Karl Marx was a Jew. Why do you why do you think Hitler why do you think Hitler tried to paint the Jews as the enemy? Did I say the Hitler? Whatever. I don't know. Anyway, it, it can be the Hitler because it was a horrible excuse for a person. Yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> Not with your pussy or your penis. No, he fucked himself with a bullet. True. True. Yeah. Face fucked himself. Yeah. Well, I mean, can you imagine how much can you imagine how much worse it would have been if the fucking Russians got him? 
<laughs> I think they would have had fun with his ass. <laughs> I think it would have been a lot like Benito uh, Mussolini's execution. Yeah, probably. Um, so hmm. I'm going to give you guys in the comments another couple of uh, links that we used as sources for this. There's a lot more. Well, I, I'm going to give you the Wikipedia article anyway. Um, but the, uh, a lot of information came from that. And um, hold on, I'm copying the link. There we go. Um, a lot of information came from that, but there's a lot more in there than what we talked about. But um, I guess that brings us to the discussion time. So if anybody has any questions or any comments or uh, Trisha, if you have anything you want to talk about. Um, I'd just like to point out that at least from where I'm sitting, it appears that, um, okay, so all of these people were fucking leaving Europe en masse because they'd had enough of the bullshit over there. They came here with these ideals going, okay, America's supposedly been talked about so much as being this land of opportunity. And they saw opportunity to bring an actual fucking left here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, that's something that needs to continue to fucking go, obviously. But what they were trying to build, what they were restricted from being able to build that would actually um, produce a happy life. Produce at least even, you know, reasonable fucking working circumstances and things. Uh, this is supposed to be the place that was promised to be able to happen. Um, not not somewhere to forever be fucking governed by capitalist rule that only serves to further exploit us. Shit like this is exactly why our, our very base laws of the Constitution are written the way that they are for it to be a fluid fucking document to be able to change with the times and with what the people's needs are. Um, and that's something that you don't see in the places they were coming from, or at least you didn't at the time. The places they were coming from had such severe restrictions of like, no, you shut the fuck up, do it's told, or you're going to get a firing squad. Don't fuck off. Um, you know, these are, these are things that we are still yet to fully bring to fruition here, but they're actually gaining some momentum because people are finally waking the fuck up and seeing how brutal and exploitative capitalism truly is. I don't know, it's nice to look to our roots to see where these things come from and how we can do better. That's all. Seize the means and the country. Amen to that. All right, so um, 
ironically here, I, I think that um, it's time to wrap up this stream, but uh, Trisha, if you're down, I mean, we might be able to go right back on uh, doing what we had talked about doing the other day. I just want to end this first because I want to be able to, you know, put it on podcast platforms is its own thing. Okay, sounds good with me. Um, are we going to do that one live as well, or are we just going to pre-record? No, we'll do it live, but I am um, I'm going to have two YouTube windows open because I'm going to be looking for interviews in old footage while we're watching what's happening live. Okay. Um, all right, I was going to say let's take a few minutes for a yeah. break it but if you're yeah. going to cut right into the live no no uh, no not unicorn riot then well, that's we can cool still take I, a break. I can start the stream and we can like i mean okay. we can start the stream when we come back okay sounds good all right i'll still stay on the line but i'm gonna hit mute on my mic um as for now thank you everybody who has joined us for this you know, episode of exploring our leftist roots. And join us next Thursday for an episode on Eugene V. Debs slash the IWW slash the Socialist Party. Fuck yes. Absolutely. We love you. It won't be so much the Socialist Party because we talked about that a lot today. We we really did more more than um realized, I think we're yeah. going to because yeah. right. this the influences that all these immigrants had. You know, it's a beautiful thing. See, this is why we don't need a fucking border wall. We need to bring people in from all over the place with new ideas and ways to improve life for everyone. And I'll just leave that one that fuck the border. It's an invisible line. Indeed. Everybody, uh, everybody else, you guys have a great night. As always, Indeed. it's been great. Absolutely. And if you're down to still hang, join us back here in a few minutes for some live coverage of what's going on in Minneapolis right now. We'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> that was a good Terminator voice. Yeah, it even echoed back at <laughs> Right, and at me. I, I got that in surround sound. Indeed. Indeed.